the bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture, as every fortnight, is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Uh, Tim, what would you like to start with in our discussion today? Well, I think we should start with housing. Um, Under Tony Blair, the mantra, his uh, government early on was education, education, education. And it seems now that we have the Queen's speech out of the way, that the Conservative uh, government are making a clear play uh, for housing, housing, housing. What they want to do um, is to introduce a bill later this year, probably in the autumn, um, that will target uh, building something in the region of 300,000 new homes a year. And the reason the Conservatives want to do this um, is not only uh, do we need a lot more housing uh, in this country, Uh, But in electoral terms, those constituencies um, that tend to have uh, 80% uh, plus uh, private home ownership um, tend to predominantly, the vast majority, you know, 80 or 90% of them tend to vote Conservative. Whereas when housing ownership uh, slips below 70% uh, in any given constituency, then they're much more likely to uh, go the way of opposition parties uh, such as Labour. So this is very political. It's not just about supply and demand, it's very political. Um, But the problem is that um, whereas housing is relatively uh, affordable um, in the north of England, um, and it's very expensive in the southeast of England and within the M25 in London, the home counties, um, of course, an awful lot of people who already own property don't necessarily want greater supply uh, of new properties because it might um, not only gobble up green places but m- more possibly uh, reduce or stagnate prices. So one of the problems in all of this is that there are a sizable number of Conservative MPs in and around London and the South East, uh, uh, anything up to 80 of them, which is what the Tory majority is in Parliament, mm. uh, say that they would probably rebel if the legislation is too radical or supply side oriented. So that's a real pickle um, that the Tories could in fact divide on this issue. Um, I'm I'm intrigued by what you say, because it's been the case for, as far as I can remember, that that properties you say is more affordable, the further away from London you get, not maybe going west, not to Cornwall, but going north. Property is much cheaper now in America. People move an enormous amount. They seem to be less mobile in this country. And I've, I've never quite understood why, given that property is such an important part of your outgoings, whether it be renting or owning, never quite understood why more people have not moved north, because the quality of life is so much better. I know you you make jokes about the north, you don't like the north yourself, but for many people, the quality of life is that much better if housing is so much less a part of your outgoing. Well, you tend to make jokes about things actually you quite like, and I mean, I spent a year at Lancaster University, there are huge parts of the north, well, I, live, I own a small a small cottage up in Yorkshire, um, and I love places like Northumbria and mm. all the rest of it. No, there are lots of parts of the North I absolutely love, but I agree with you. First of all, America is quite mobile, but first of all, it's vast, and then secondly, it was built uh, culturally, you know, uh, and empirically by people who were prepared to travel. You yes. Know, lots of people didn't just come from Britain, but they came from Sweden, they came from Germany, all over. And um, uh, there is this vast, you know, uh, canvas 
upon which people and families uh, can evolve over time. So there is a not a nomadic tradition, but a moving around tradition. Um, and often, if you work, for example, for major US corporates, um, then they encourage you to move around. In education, lots of students move around. Mm. It's a big thing, you know, in America that students go to universities and they form relationships in different parts of the country. In Britain, you know, it's a big part. We're, we're a little big country. So we have quite a sizable population, really. But we have, um, uh, you know, we, it's a relatively small landmass. I mean, we're even considerably smaller than, than France and certainly mm. Germany. And here, um, um, it seems that uh, local traditions, local labour markets, tie people down. Uh, people are, are more rooted here um, to, to, you know, local areas. Now, with the rise of universities, with the rise of the motor car and all those things, some of that, um, uh, and with the rise of immigration, some of that, some of that, that sort of traditional rootedness has been broken down. But an awful lot of people... Um, don't move around. I think that's cultural, it's partly economic. The, the challenge for the Conservative Party, um, or for any party in British politics, is that whereas um, education at almost every level has seen remarkable investment improvement in recent decades, um, and, uh, and, and, and indeed the NHS has done very well in the last couple of you know, years, partly because of COVID and, and all the rest of it, um, the, the one area of public policy well, there are two areas. One is social policy, but the other area where we seem to struggle to get things right in this country is housing. And the bottom line, Simon, is that you know successive Labour and Tory governments have been trying to boost housing figures um, for years and have failed. It, very lucky if you get sort of two hundred, maybe mm. one hundred forty thousand homes built a year. That's really, really lucky. It's in a mega good year. But, yes, but we've no, got I, more than that. We need yes. a lot from that. Uh, now I know uh, Liam Harrigan, Halligan, who who you know, and I think has has uh, talked at your uh, university. Um, has been doing programs on on Channel Four's written a book. I mean, he has been banging on about this for a long time and has come up with some incredibly sensible suggestions. You, you almost get the impression from what the government announced in the Queen's speech that they haven't read any of the thinkers about housing uh, and tried to come up with ideas. I mean, one of one of Halligan's big things, of course, is that uh, we lost a lot of small, medium-sized house builders when the financial crisis hit. They couldn't keep going. The market is now controlled by a relatively small number of very large companies who tend to build by and large houses that are occasionally uh, somewhat shoddy and that also of course there's no incentive for them to build because the value of land keeps going up because there aren't enough houses so it's easier for them to sit on the land bank you're absolutely right i mean because the planning laws in this country are so stringent if you can get land and then have you know planning permission placed on it the 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 the, the, the value of that land shoots up just by dint of the planning permission you don't then have to actually build up anything on it for some time so this asset can sit on your balance sheet and boost your apparent finances and your standing with investors and financial institutions but you actually haven't done anything apart from apply for permission and liam argues that there, there are four or five major companies that dominate this sort of market in the uk and they've sewn things up and that they're distorting the market um, for the reasons you explained, there are lots of. I think the government, are, I think they are aware of that, and, uh, and what they do want to do is to encourage supply side measures, and what they want to do is to encourage um, local authorities 
uh, to free up more and more land um, and, and, and really encourage lots mm. more market entrants to come into the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the house building sector. So I think that's what the government want to do. The problem is um, in the electoral sphere, lots of people in that sort of not in my backyard, the NIMBY mindset, who are almost unconscious co-conspirators of the oligopolists who try to control <laughs> the market. Yes. Um, so the question is, uh, can the government get through reforms in such a way that they go over and above the heads of these um, rapacious sort of vested interests? And actually, and this is what I think is so important, encourage young people who've had such a tough time through the financial crisis and, and through COVID and, and really and through austerity as well, can they actually, you know, open up a world where for young people, when they work hard, when they go to study hard, when they go to university and they go out to work, can they then translate their efforts um, and, and place their feet on what we used to call the first rung of the housing ladder? Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I did work hard and and I studied hard and I got my PhD, I think by the time I was 28, I did sort of all the things that was really asked of, of my generation all those years ago. Um, but having saved hard and worked hard, I was also able to put a deposit mm. and buy my first property when I was 28, 29. Now you have to get into, well, many people get into their mid to late thirties before they can buy anything. So this, this bill that will enter Parliament later this year is very, very important. And I think it'll be a tremendous shame if um, lots of people in the opposition benches, but a good number of Conservatives, um, find weasel ways of opposing these supply-side reforms and therefore actually conspiring de facto with already wealthy people in the southeast of England um, and conspire with the sort of... Um, uh, people that dominate the house building sector that Liam Halligan has so eloquently talked about and criticised. Um, it did strike me that there is a, a worry about city centres in the UK because of COVID being hollowed out to some extent. And we think more people are going back to the offices than perhaps we thought might do six months ago. Uh, clearly not everybody is going to work from home who's been working from home since COVID hit. But one can see that many companies are going to require a smaller percentage of their employees to be working. One does want it's a very, very difficult at the moment to repurpose office space as residential space, or indeed some of the pubs or the shops that have closed down. But you can't help feeling that making it easier to do that would be incredibly useful and, of course, keep city centres and town centres um, alive. You're absolutely right. And, you know, there's a very famous academic that has done an awful lot of work in this area over many years. Uh, Jane Jacobs famously uh, talks about some of the uh, interventionist damage done, um, not just in places like Britain, but, but also in the US, at, at, at sort of when, when politicians, be they local or national, get involved in zoning and often make it very difficult because a certain area is decreed as being, uh, as in within the corporation of the City of London, very few people live there. Most of it is sort of decreed to be office space. Um, um, or, you know, you get city centres absolutely demarcated to be retail, or then you get um, other places that are just to be residential. And often you find 
um, that both areas are, are not as enriched or as enlivened or, or have all the right support you know, facilities that, that they should. The most, by the way, the most ludicrous, um, and this isn't funny at all, but the most ludicrous and extreme example of completely out of control sort of zoning I've ever seen was in Central Europe, um, in the Central European city of Bratislava, where under the communist uh, regime, they did sort of extreme forms of what I could only describe as hyperzoning. Um, they actually built one of the largest um, estates in Europe. It's called Petrzelka, and it's south in Bratislava. It's sort of towards Vienna. But they basically built um, uh, an estate with quarter of a million apartments. And they managed to put in, you know, public transport, they put in buses, etc. And there was the occasional kiosk. But there were very, very few, if any, retail, you know, proper shops. Now that's changed now, uh, because the Berlin Wall you know, came down sort of 30 years ago, and, and things have been repurposed. But back in the 50s and 60s, you know, when when it was sort of the high tide of, of planning, mm -hmm. be it in Central and Eastern Europe, or indeed here, um the zoning laws reached their height i agree with you i was a few weeks ago i was in the city of london where very few people were there lots of free office space and you do think why can't we have a more liberal slightly more radical approach particularly targeting you know trying to help young people who are so desperate to get on the house yes i agree it's all the why can't we have a more fluid approach to all these things um yes. You know, we don't even have to talk about the market because when you talk about the market, you sound terribly right wing. But yes, and, and with too many of the ideas distort the market. Things like help to buy ices, all they're doing is pushing property prices up. Well, and and that's the danger, you know. So I think we need less not in my backyard, and we need much greater spirit of cooperation. And let's help mm. young people get on some ladders for a change. Tim, thank you very much indeed. Let's change topic. <laughs> Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, um, our second topic, please. Well, our second topic is... Um, uh, very apposite for these days because uh, despite uh, all the naughtiness uh, that we've seen uh, ensuing from uh, Belarusia recently where they brought down the Ryanair flight uh, and they removed uh, a young campaigner for democracy who has disappeared um, into Belarusia's um, sort of Kafkaesque and bullying state. Many people say that um, that Belarusia is the last you know the last Stalinist um, sort of country or, or soggy Stalinist country in Europe. Um, despite uh, all the activities going on in Belarusia and, and Russia's clear support of, of its leader, um, uh, Germany, under the leadership of uh, Angela Merkel, seems absolutely adamant to plough on uh, with becoming ever more reliant for energy, um, uh, energy coming from Russia, vis-a-vis um, -vis the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Now, Nord Stream 2 uh, has been built in recent years. It supplies um, 
will supply vast amounts, and I mean uh, something like um, two trillion cubic uh, meters of gas or, or, or more per year uh, from two initial pipelines uh, in Russia. The, the pipeline will go across the uh, the Baltic under the Baltic, um, and then and then go into um, Germany. Um, uh, uh, it is rumored that this pipeline will go live any day now. And despite uh, huge concern from NATO, from the United States, from Britain, uh, 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 and, and other countries concerned about, you know, the 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 the, the power and the rise of Putin and his mob in Russia, um, um, yes. Angela Merkel is determined to go ahead with this and, and, and link Germany to it. And the result of this uh, will be that, like other countries in Central Europe, and I'm thinking of Hungary, I'm thinking of Slovakia, I'm thinking of the Czech Republic, uh, who have long, have long been um, uh, so reliant on Russia for, for much of their energy, um, Germany is becoming ever more inveigled into the energy web of Mother Russia. And, and that means that, that for all these countries, they become constrained um, in, in the way they can act on the international and geopolitical stage. Um, uh, it, it will you know, potentially clip their elbow rooms when it comes to sanctions uh, against countries like Belarus and Russia. Um, it, it, it gives Moscow uh, 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 a whip hand that, that they know they no doubt will want to use from time to time. So we're on the verge of seeing Nord Stream two go live any time now. Um, it is probably the longest gas pipeline anywhere in the world, um, but it comes. It will come at a huge geopolitical price, um, and one that could be um, detrimental to those of us who believe in. In, in in Western sort of liberal democracies. And presumably would not have been needed had they not so abruptly decided to abandon nuclear power, which of course the French haven't done. Uh, that's right. And, you know, in, 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 I mean, technologically, uh, you're seeing um, uh, some players, I think Rolls-Royce is part of this, uh, developing a new generation of, of mini nuclear power yes. stations. Uh, that, 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 that alongside solar and wind and hydroelectric and all the other things, you know, can, can provide a diversity which can shield you, uh, can shield a country from becoming overly reliant on, on other players. And, you know, Britain is in many ways leading that. We're doing it under the rubric of, of, the, um, of the environmental agenda. Um, and if anything, we're, we're bringing that agenda forward. I suspect, as I've said to you before, I suspect we're doing that um, because we don't want to be overly reliant on other, on other countries um, and, and therefore it sort of bleeds into what you might mm. crudely call our national security agenda. But Germany really has signed up. It, it shunned uh, nuclear and, and, and it's decided absolutely for its energy to get into bed um, with with Russia. That's going to be a long-term commitment. Um, Germany has long had um, this burgeoning relationship with Russia. Of course, Angela Merkel grew up in East Germany. She was in her youth 
Um, she was, um, I, I think, probably even a member of the Communist Party. She was certainly part of their, you know, she was an apparatchnik uh, in, 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 in their structures uh, when Eric Honecker led East Germany. Um, and Nord Stream 2 is, is, is hugely supported, I have to say, in, in various corners of, the, um, of East Germany's electoral sphere to this day. Many older people in East Germany sort of hark back to that Soviet, that, that strong top-down mm. socialist era, and, and they're quite happy to have Nord Stream 2. But, but the view is very different um, in, in, um, in NATO headquarters and, and in Washington and in London and in Paris. They're very concerned about this. Germany's a relatively important member of NATO, but certainly extremely important member of the EU. I mean, Germany and France essentially are the two most important countries. So presumably that's going to make it more difficult for the EU as a whole ever to to act uh, to restrain Russia or to reprimand it for anything that it does. I mean, the response to, you know, to, to, the, to bringing that Ryanair plane um, down, which was an appalling act of virtually of international piracy, um, has been pathetic, hasn't it? Well, it has. And, you know, this is where if you supply, if you have the whip hand um, in, a, in a country's energy supply, then you can clip uh, the wings of, of, of the democracies. Um, you know, you have to wonder uh, if uh, the United Kingdom had suffered uh, the attack uh, that took place uh, in Salisbury. If that attack were to take place after Nord Stream 2 has come online, would Germany, whoever there, whoever is in government in Germany, would they have had the elbow room and the confidence uh, to be able to criticize uh, Russia for its act of well, it's blatant act of, of, of terrorism in the United Kingdom, would, um, would, would, would Germany have been able to stand full square with Britain and France and others that, that indeed make, did make such a strong, a strong stand against Russia at the time? And, and the answer is probably no. So I think Nord Stream 2 represents an inflection point uh, that will constrain the German elites and what they can say and what they can do on the European, on the really broad European stage vis-a-vis -vis Russia for a long time. And where that goes, I don't know. One of the things I think that is concerning, and you've hit the nail on the head, is not only does this not go down well in, in London and Washington, but this could, uh, won't shatter, but it could, could give a sense of a fissure between, um, you know, that Charlemagnean partnership that the EU so relies on, um, Germany and France. Usually France and Germany stand four square when it comes to foreign policy and all kinds of issues. But what if over the years we start to see France becoming, you know, more robust, hardline vis-a-vis -vis Putin and, and Russia and, and Germany starting to weaken? And um, 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 and indeed, you've hit the nail, head, nail on the head again. Where will that go vis-a-vis -vis the wider European Union? Poland uh, has remained partly because of its history, but also its politics. You know, very robust when it comes to its criticism of um, of Russia. Hungary, long dependent on Russia mm. for its energy, um, often is less strident 
than Poland, even though Hungarians have, you know, have have their own history with yes. as we know from 1956. So the way that these energy issues bleed into a nation's politics and its diplomacy um, can can have serious ramifications. And of course, Russia, Russia um, knows this and has worked very hard to promote Nord Stream 2, and no doubt would have worked very, very hard to undermine uh, the, the original German nuclear energy program. So mm. they become they become the favoured option. Yeah, a good moment for us to switch topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University, Professor of Business and Political Economy. Tim, what is our final topic, please? Our final topic is, well, it didn't get a lot of coverage in recent days, but I think it's very, very important um, and, and very telling. Basically, um, the European Union uh, has been trying to do uh, a trade deal with Switzerland for quite a few years now. Um, but in recent days, um, those talks uh, collapsed. Uh, and they basically collapsed because the Swiss decided to pull out. And the reason the Swiss decided to pull out was that they thought the European Union um, was trying to attach to you know, what the Swiss regarded as a sort of core trade deal, um, too much politics and, and, and too many conditions which undermined um, the sort of uh, uh, Swiss traditions, which are fairly small c conservative and fairly economically liberal. And, and I think what's interesting about that is that it's almost as if the European Union bureaucracies or or, or the European Union from an ideological perspective um, has not learnt the lessons from Brexit, uh, which is you have to account for national sensibilities, national cultures, um, and, and you have to be agile and flexible. You have to be able to tailor make uh, deals um, and to negotiate in a way where there will be people, you know, there are countries where they almost welcome EU interventionism and they almost welcome the EU providing the template um, across a whole range of areas. You know, when, when, when for example, Romania joined the European Union, um, I think the Romanian elite saw uh, that as an opportunity to grab a sort of template from Brussels on, on, uh, on how you refresh a whole range of institutions. So that was the path Romania took. Switzerland's in a very different place. It's already a very successful, you know, very economically vibrant country with a, with a really, really interesting, quite unusual constitution. Um, the Swiss clearly wanted to do a trade deal. What they didn't want to do is pick up lots of other templates with reshaped, reshaped institutions that clearly they think work perfectly well. And in many cases, Switzerland worked pretty well for, for many decades, if not hundreds of years. So it's this one um, 
one shape fits all approach, I think, to negotiation that the European Union carries on with and often leads to failure. And, and for, for me, the question has to be, if the European Union cannot do a trade deal with Switzerland, having spent many, many years at the table trying to negotiate it, um, well, that's a pretty bad commentary, isn't it, on, on, on how they approach negotiations um, in an age where I think we all have to be flexible, agile and reflective. Yes, uh, I mean, perhaps the EU would blame the Swiss in some way. They maybe would. would. They, they would indeed, and they would be very critical of the Swiss um, for not wanting um, to do a trade deal that strayed into all kinds of constitutional and political areas. Um, uh, and that would therefore have inveigled Switzerland into a, a regulatory uniformity yes. rules over and above trade. Because as I understand it, what, what, do that. Yes, what they were trying to do was codify 120 or so bilateral trade agreements they already had, because the EU uh, and Switzerland have been trading quite happily for many years, trying to codify it into one one thing but the eu wanted to add lots of extra little bits on top of it so those trade agreements are still in place they're presumably one by one they will gradually fall by the the wayside but um switzerland presumably has got quite a strong um uh, bargaining hand hasn't it now because so much of the eu's goods actually go through switzerland it's a massive um massively important for the ease of trade going through to other countries this is right and the, you know the issue is the Swiss thought that this was a tidying up operation and that they could do a trade deal. I think they were amazed that the European Union wanted to bolt on all these other sort of add-ons and extras, which the Swiss didn't really see as relevant. And now the whole thing's collapsed. And, and so, yes, as often happens, trade will carry on, but the tidying up operation won't happen. And, and the European Union... Um, you know, didn't get many of the more political things that it wanted to get. And, and it's the inflexibility, I think. It's the mindset, it's, it's, it's the, the ideology, the theocracy of Brussels that I think um, time and time again is leads, leading to failures. Um, it's almost as if they have a 1950s, 1960s mindset, but for many fairly agile, very successful nation states, you know, that one size fits all uniformity rules is no longer the way to play it. Mm. The name of the game is, you know, can you do a trade deal and can you tailor it? Um, as I say, there are countries who want to do a deal where they do want all the political bits and all the adults. Yes. Romania was a good example. But if Switzerland doesn't, well, the answer is, all right, well, don't give them that, but do the trade deal. Um, you know, um, don't say, well, we did this deal with Romania and now we yes. want to sign up to the whole package like yes. they did. Because yeah. don't be surprised if the Swiss walk away. And when it comes to the global um, landscape, that sort of that global canvas, um, you know, the European Union does not have a great relationship, a great record on doing trade deals uh, with far-flung places. They, these negotiations come on for years, and often they don't work out or they can't be drawn to a close. 
you know, someone who lived in Brussels, and I, and I quite like, you know, the the European sentiment of moving around and trading and going for growth. I get all that. Um, you know, so at sort of one level, you you don't want them to be so silly. You want to shake them up a bit, um, so that they so that they can do things which, quite frankly, is pretty basic to any student, pretty much anywhere in the world today, Simon, that's doing an MBA. Mm. You know, be reflective, be agile, um, um, keep an eye on what your customers actually want. Don't try and sell them stuff they don't want. I mean, all these basics. Um, and the European Union um, not only seems to not understand this, but it fails to learn it. And learning is vital. Reflecting and learning is so important to being human, I think. Tim, thank you. Fascinating as ever. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.